0: Welcome to How to Save a Planet. I'm Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson.
1: And I'm Alex Bloomberg. And this is the show where we talk about what we need to do to address climate change and how to make those things happen.
0: April, demonstrators took to the streets of Washington, D.C., carrying this giant homemade puppet of a black snake. It was hundreds of feet long and represented an oil pipeline. They streamed this protest live on Facebook.
2: Keep it in the soil! Keep it in the soil!
1: The protesters were in D.C. to demand that President Biden shut down a couple of oil pipelines. The Dakota Access Pipeline, which runs from the Dakotas to Illinois, and a pipeline called the Line 3 Project in Minnesota, which is currently under construction. The protest was organized by groups representing indigenous people and communities along the pipeline routes. And the protesters say that if the Biden administration is serious about tackling climate change, it needs to stop these big fossil fuel projects. But this pipeline protest, and pipeline protests in general, are also about so much more than just stopping individual projects. Mm -hmm. The battle over pipelines has been central to the creation of a much more powerful climate movement in the United States, a broader movement with real political influence.
0: And these protests have aligned the climate movement with the fight for indigenous rights, that Native American people and tribes should have a say over what happens in their historic territories.
1: So this week on the podcast, how pipeline protests helped create today's climate movement.
0: And we'll go to the front lines of one of these pipeline fights. A fight, in the words of organizers, for water, for treaties, for climate. That's all coming up after the break.
1: So we're going to start the story with a little project known as the Keystone XL Pipeline.
0: <laughs> Not actually little at all. <laughs> yeah, it
1: was it was a very big project. It was first proposed back in 2008 by the Canadian pipeline company TransCanada, which is now TC Energy.
0: Like we're going to forget if you just change your name.
1: They did a rebrand. <laughs> the plan was to build a 1,200-mile pipeline to carry oil from Canada to Nebraska, where it would continue on from there to refineries on the U.S. Gulf Coast. And this oil was being extracted from land near indigenous communities way up north in Alberta, Canada. Communities like the one where Melina Labucon Massimo grew up.
0: Melina is Lubicon Cree. She and other members of First Nations in Canada spoke out against the projects.
3: In Alberta, it's very, um, it's like little Texas, right? So when you're like being vocal, people don't like that. And so we were, (laughs) people weren't very happy with us. Let's just say it was like, we were like anti-patriotic or anti-Albertan or anti-whatever. And we're like, no, we're actually pro-water, pro-life, pro-actual Mother Earth life Mm -hmm. um, and clean water, pro-clean water.
1: And Melina says that as this oil development was ramping up in the 2000s in Alberta, not many people outside the region were aware of it.
3: So it was, it was just even raising the alarm bell around this big industrial mega project that no one knew about. There was no conversation around the fact that we're switching from conventional oil to unconventional, expensive, hard-to-reach dirty oil.
1: That expensive, hard-to-reach, dirty oil that is talking about, it's oil from what are called tar sands. And tar sand oil is some of the most carbon-intensive oil on the planet. Because tar sands fields, they're not like a conventional oil field where you pump the oil out of the ground with these big wells that you've probably seen. Instead, the oil is mixed in with sand and clay.
0: So it's like a big mess of stuff. And extracting it often requires these giant surface mines. And then the oil has to be separated out from the sand and the clay and everything. So it both takes a ton of energy to extract and refine tar sands oil and... Tar sands mining overall just has a major impact on the local environment.
3: So because Indigenous peoples are so closely connected to land, we see the impact immediately. The air was starting to become foul. And then also the inability, so when people go into the traditional territory to go hunting, fishing, trapping, which is a said constitutional right for indigenous peoples, the inability to do that more and more because of encroachment, um, fragmentation, deforestation of the Boreal Forest, which is the Northern lungs of Mother Earth. And then also just like, just be able to like get a dipper and like drink clean water.
0: So they started raising the alarm. Marching, protesting, lobbying lawmakers, anything to bring attention to the impact on their communities.
1: And these protests, though they started in Canada, they didn't stay there. Word of the Keystone XL spread to communities along the planned pipeline route in the U.S. as well. Joy Braun remembers when she heard the pipeline would run through the area near her home, on the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation in South Dakota. The route would cross just outside the current reservation, but through the tribe's ancestral lands, which are still covered by treaties with the U.S. government.
4: So this pipeline wanted to go through this very sacred route of ours. And we said, no, that wasn't going to happen. You are coming onto our lands. These are our treaty territories. We never gave free, prior, informed consent. So they don't have the authority to come through
1: here. Joy and others were angry that the tribes weren't being listened to. They worried that the proposed pipeline would run through important sites. And also, they worried about pipeline spills. In 2010, a pipeline carrying tar sands oil in Michigan ruptured, spilling an estimated million gallons of thick oil into the Kalamazoo River. Tar sands oil is thicker and heavier than other oil, and the disaster took years to clean up and forced people from their homes. Joy and others worried that a pipeline spill on their land could be disastrous.
0: So she and others started protesting and lobbying on their own. But they realized fighting a giant project backed by both the U.S. and Canadian governments, this is something they could not get done by themselves.
4: What happened during the Keystone XL fight is we realized that we needed allies.
1: And so they reached out to some unlikely allies, Farmers and ranchers along the route who were also worried about pipeline spills in their water supply, and also angry that TransCanada was threatening to seize their land. Joy says that alliance, it took some work.
4: And so that process was um, hard <laughs> because you're dealing you're dealing with Midwest racism, right? Uh You're dealing literally with cowboys versus Indians, right? Right. So in in talking with and visiting and making friends with uh, farmers and ranchers in Montana and South Dakota and Nebraska, we had to really deal with a lot of racism and a lot of prejudices and prejudices on both sides because – you know we're very wary of, of letting these these non-native people into our into our space. You know, are they going to, are they going to walk around and go woo 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 woo? Are they going to do you know, you know, stupid stuff? You know, and, and some of them did. But after many years of, of visiting and having dinners and planting ponca corn and and inviting people to powwows and. Going to state fairs and, you know, really crossing over and and visiting like that, we we made friends.
1: Over time, these unlikely friends did come together to oppose Keystone. In fact, they actually called themselves a Cowboy-Indian Alliance.
0: Way to reclaim that scenario. (laughs) Seriously, right? (laughs) So there was resistance to the tar sands in Alberta, and there's this cowboy-Indian alliance kind of building up inertia on the prairie. But at this point, this was still really a regional fight. But then, in 2011,
1: (laughs) a new set of allies entered the picture.
2: We basically, in early 2011, were kind of looking around and saying, where's a barricade where we can take a stand?
0: That's Jamie Henn, He co-founded the group 350.org, which was trying to figure out how do we build a national movement around climate change?
2: There really wasn't a climate movement to speak of. Um, You know, there was an environmental movement, um, but climate change was kind of this new global threat um, that not a lot of people were working on and nobody could quite get a handle on how to get after the problem.
1: By 2011, there had been a string of high-profile defeats on climate change. There was this big UN conference in Copenhagen that was supposed to bring countries together to tackle climate change, but it fell flat. The Obama administration had proposed a big climate bill, but it died in Congress.
2: I think we were kind of getting to the point where, you know, we just sort of sat back and said, like, this isn't working. And we know that one of the strategies of social movements since time immemorial has been civil disobedience, that when you can find places that dramatize an issue and engage in civil disobedience, that that can really attract attention, really move something forward. And we took direct inspiration from looking at the civil rights movement and sort of asked that question of like, what's our lunch counter on climate? You know, where do you pick that fight?
1: As it happened, just the right fight was already underway along the route of the Keystone XL Pipeline. Because not only did the Keystone Pipeline encroach on tribal sovereignty and threaten local ecosystems, here was a giant, continent-spanning piece of fossil fuel infrastructure representing a major investment in the future of oil. It was climate change made concrete.
0: And because the project would cross the U.S.-Canada border, it had to apply for a permit from the Obama administration. And so all those advocates along the pipeline corridor that we mentioned earlier, the First Nations peoples in Canada, the tribes and ranchers and farmers in the U.S., they were calling on President Obama to reject the project.
1: To Jamie Henn and the folks at 350.org, this all meant that this was exactly the fight they'd been looking to join.
2: You know, here's a major fossil fuel project that requires a presidential permit um, to cross the border between the U.S. and Canada. Um, so we really latched on to that to say, this is a project that Barack Obama can approve or deny with the stroke of a pen. And so what could be a more perfect symbol about his commitment to climate action?
0: Jamie and the team at 350.org reached out to the groups who were protesting along the pipeline route.
2: And they were like, hell yeah. Let's do it. You know, let's go and try and pull something off.
0: And that is what they did. In August of 2011, 350.org, along with representatives from groups along the pipeline route, from Molina in Alberta to farmers in Nebraska, staged a sit-in outside the White House. More than 162 people have been arrested since Saturday. They kept it up for two weeks. Every day, people kept coming and kept getting arrested.
1: And by the time they were done, more than 1,200 people had been arrested. And the protests got the attention of the Obama administration. In January of 2012, just months after that first sit-in, President Obama did what the protesters were asking and rejected Keystone's permit. And then the fight was over. (laughs) Uh, No, of course it wasn't. (laughs) Trans-Canada appealed that decision. And then there was a back and forth that continued for years. When Donald Trump was elected president, one of his first actions was to reauthorize the
0: pipeline. And then on Joe Biden's first day as president, he revoked that permit, hopefully for the last time.
1: But Jamie says this victory, it went beyond just shutting down the pipeline. Keystone was a big turning point for the climate movement in general.
2: Movements are funny, like it's, they're always simmering below the surface. And so I, I, you know, I think there was a movement out there, but Keystone really brought it together. I think Keystone made it a fighting movement in the streets. Um, I think it was the first step of that.
0: If Keystone was the first step in bringing all of these groups together and catalyzing a national climate movement, the step that came next took it to a whole new level.
1: In the spring of 2016, the Army Corps of Engineers was preparing to approve a permit for a project called the Dakota Access Pipeline, DAPL for short. A project that would run more than a thousand miles from the Bakken oil fields of North Dakota to Illinois, crossing beneath the Missouri River, just upstream from the Standing Rock Sioux Reservation.
0: The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe argued that this pipeline would cross lands containing sacred and historical sites and would threaten the Missouri River, the reservation's water supply. So who did they reach out to? Well, the people who had just killed the Keystone XL pipeline. People like Joy Braun.
4: We had gotten a call from um, grassroots people in Standing Rock saying that this pipeline was coming through. These were moms and dads and grandmas and, you know, and grandpas and aunties and just, you know, saying help. Um, council isn't doing anything. How do we get them involved? What do we do? Well, they asked me and so then I, I turned to my youth and I said, hey, do you guys want to go fight another pipeline? And my youth, my, my, my youth here said, yeah, let's go. So you like, all right. So they borrowed a van and I got my car and we drove up there. Right? We sold cinnamon rolls for um, gas money and we got up there.
1: Joy's youth were a group of young people from the Cheyenne River Sioux Reservation that Joy had been mentoring and who'd participated in some of the Keystone protests with her. She says she remembers arriving at the community center there where a bunch of the Standing Rock kids were playing basketball in the gym.
4: And the kids ran through the community and said, the Pipeline Fighters are here, the Pipeline Fighters are here. Joy and others decided
0: to set up a prayer camp along the Pipeline's route, a tactic they'd used in the fight against Keystone to raise awareness.
4: It was all decided. Everything was going to go down April 1st. I had already taken my teepee poles up the week before. I loaded everything up that I could in the back of my blazer and then... I, my, my original plan was I was going to stay at the casino April 1st, <laughs> but, then, but then nobody had volunteered to camp that first night. And I was like, well, okay, my teepee poles are here. Let's put up my teepee. <laughs> and then my cousin, Weaka, said, ah, you can't be here alone as a woman by yourself. And he's like, "I gotta stay here and protect you." <laughs> <laughs> and uh, that was that first night. And those first few months, we we go anywhere from you know three or four campers to maybe 15, 20. Mm-hmm. And that's usually what happens. Usually camps are very small. Yeah, as you're raising awareness, hopefully you're doing direct action training. Hopefully you're doing some cultural stuff like singing and prayers and and ceremonies and different things. We were doing all that. Then um, we got word that uh, they were going to start construction. So um, my my daughter filmed a, a YouTube video of me putting out a call out asking for campers to come and and my my wildest guess would maybe be 50 100 people would show up. I mean to me that would would have been a big count. I never imagined that at one point we would be the ninth largest city in all of North Dakota. Oh my God. <laughs> wow. Yeah. yeah.
1: The hundreds and later thousands of people that eventually came to that camp. They did not call themselves protesters. They called themselves water protectors. They had a phrase which would become famous, Minnie wichoni In Lakota, water is life. Over the next few months, word about what was happening at Standing Rock spread. And one thing that really helped raise awareness was when that group of young people that Joy refers to as her youth, they decided to make a statement. They decided to run to the headquarters of the Army Corps of Engineers in Omaha, Nebraska, 500 miles away, to ask them to deny the pipeline permit.
0: And then they did a bigger run, all the way from Standing Rock to Washington, D.C.
4: The youngest runner at the time was six years old. Oh, my her na- God. She, her name was Love Hopkins. She was five or six. She was really young.
1: And she ran 2,000 miles?
4: Yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. Well, they do it oh. in a relay, you know. Yeah. One runs and the next, another yeah. But yeah, she's six years old.
0: Videos of the runners got shared all over social media. We
5: run! We, we run! We're people! We're people! we one, one nation! We run!
0: Celebrities shared it. The actress Shailene Woodley even joined the run. And these runners struck a chord, including with some of the tribal leaders who hadn't been on board with all of this.
1: Journalist Jenny Monet remembers when she realized what a big deal this was. She was on the phone with the head of a native governance organization. And she realized this guy wasn't paying attention to anything she was saying on the phone.
6: He started looking at a video. It was clear in the background he could hear the video. And he said, oh, my God, the chairman of the Standing Rock Tribe just got arrested. (laughs) And I said, what? And that's when I knew that something was going on, something unprecedented and in a way that we just hadn't seen before. It's not common that tribal leaders are willingly putting themselves on the front lines of something, um, particularly when it pertains to energy projects.
0: Jenny says those runners, the kids who ran all the way to D.C., they had lit a fire. Those runners had been a turning point.
6: And I think that to a lot of leaders, tribal leaders of the Great Plains, that really, that really spoke to them. It sparked them into a way of action that we had not seen before, uh, where you saw an elders council form from that. And from that elders council, a lot of spiritual leaders joining in the movement too, which we had not seen before. And so what you saw really was um, the greater Sioux Nation coming together as one. And from that, I call it spirit and energy that built from that. It just magnetized people from all over Indian country to come. I mean, you have people taking road trips from every corner of Indian country, including as far as Alaska to be there.
0: Jenny decided she needed to be there too.
6: I was teaching journalism in Tucson, Arizona, and a student who had just graduated casually mentioned the protest at Standing Rock. And I said, oh yeah, I've been monitoring that too. Well, she text messages me out of the blue and said, I've just rented a van. We roll out tonight. Please come with us. And that she would take me up there. (laughs) And it just felt like such the native thing to do because that's what our people do. We take road trips. We don't hop on planes. We hop in cars. We load it up with goodies and we head on up. And that's exactly what we did. And we drove throughout the night and got to Standing Rock just hours after this critical moment in the movement, um, the day on September 3rd, 2016, when private security guards sicked dogs on a group of water protectors. And that situation, it was first of all, it was um, it was intimately documented by Amy Goodman of Democracy Now and her team.
4: One man in hard hat threw one of the protesters down. Some of the security have dogs.
6: They did an incredible job, not only capturing the the horror of the moment and something that we just haven't seen since, you know. The days of the civil rights era, um, you know, in the 1950s and 60s, where dogs were being sicked on women and children. Um, And that particular moment was sent around the world.
1: A huge part of the issue at Standing Rock was treaty rights. The Standing Rock Sioux Tribe argued that the Dakota Access Pipeline runs through land covered by treaties with the US government, which gives the tribe the right to be consulted. And so this project came to represent for so many people one more broken treaty, one more instance of being pushed off the land.
6: It just became a unified front for so many people who absolutely said, yes, we're never listened to, are, we are the caretakers of this land, and, you know, enough. And for me, it was not lost on me at all that this was happening on some of the most bloodstained indigenous lands in so-called America. The Great Plains, the home of the Great Sioux Nation, the Ocheti Shikoi, who haven't always been, you know, historically banded together. I mean, that also was something that was very early on emerging in the narrative at Standing Rock that past differences, past grievances were set aside um, to build a unified front, an indigenous front. And I think that that's what became very clear for indigenous peoples in the United States and eventually around the world. There were delegations that were arriving from Ecuador. Um, the Sami people of Norway were on their way. There was a group of people coming from Australia. And by the time that I returned, um, at the end of September, early October, The camp had already swelled, (laughs) almost doubled at that time. And the number of flags that you would see flying down that center road, more than 400 flags flying um, from tribal nations and indigenous lands around the world down flag row. And you would just hear them flapping in the wind and get goosebumps.
1: And Jenny says people just felt called to be there.
6: I think what a lot of people felt like when they were drawn to Standing Rock early on is that we were pulled there. I mean, there was this, for Native people, Indigenous people, we all felt something bigger than ourselves had brought us there to those lands at that time. I still get chills about it to this day. And I know that that's not the... The journalist in me speaking. That is just um, as an Indigenous person speaking. That this um, this moment was so profound on so many levels. I mean, people quit their jobs (laughs) to be at Standing Rock, and you hear that a lot. Like, uh, there was there were people there who got sober. There were people there to atone for maybe you know some of um, their past you know, to seek some kind of humility and seek forgiveness of themselves there. There was a healing. There was definitely a collective healing happening at Standing Rock that goes generations deep. Standing Rock was so much more than a pipeline. It was, it was a stand against historical injustices, broken treaties, and generations of of a need to heal from a lot of, inequality that still persists today. It was an experience I don't know that I will ever have ever again in my career or in my life as a, jur- as a journalist or as an Indigenous person, um, even when there are all these other pipeline battles and environmental fights ahead of us. For, for a lot of reasons, Standing Rock was just special.
1: The protesters at Standing Rock won a major victory in December of 2016, when the Army Corps of Engineers paused construction of the pipeline for more review. But like Keystone, it's been a years-long battle since then. The pipeline was approved under Donald Trump, and it's actually running today, even though a court in 2020 ruled that the pipeline should not have been allowed to run under Standing Rock's water source. What happens next is up to the Biden administration. And in fact, the protest we heard at the very beginning of this episode, that's what it was about. They were urging the Biden administration to shut down the pipeline. But regardless of what happens, the protests at Standing Rock remain a milestone, both for the indigenous rights movement and for the climate movement.
0: Standing Rock drew in people from all walks of life, some who had never thought about climate change before, some who had never really thought about indigenous rights before. And suddenly people were connecting the dots. It all felt real and concrete and the stakes became abundantly clear.
1: One person like this was now Congresswoman Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. And she says that Standing Rock was what made climate change an issue for her in the first place. I first started thinking about running for Congress actually at Standing Rock in North Dakota and South Dakota and, uh, and it was really from that crucible of activism where I saw people putting their lives on the line and native peoples putting everything they had on the line, not just for themselves, not just so that this
6: country can honor the treaties that we have made, but for the entire water supply for the Midwest United States, that they're putting everything on the line for
0: others. And Standing Rock has become this template for new fights over pipelines across the U.S., one of which is heating up right now, the Line 3 project in Minnesota. After the break, we'll go to this latest front in the pipeline fight.
1: Welcome back. Today, we're talking about oil pipelines and the way the fight against pipelines has shaped
5: the climate movement in the United States.
0: And so we called up someone who's at the very center of a pipeline protest that's heating up right now.
5: Bonjour, Ginoa. Uh, My name is Tara Hauska. I'm Bear Clan from Kuching, First Nation. Uh, Jaboei Kwe is my Indian name.
1: We reached Tara Houska at the resistance camp where she lives. It's just a couple of hundred yards from the path of another proposed pipeline in Minnesota called the Line 3 Pipeline. And she was actually kind of hard to get a hold of. This protest camp is completely off the grid, and she was using a solar panel to charge her phone.
0: So you're all charged up with your um, electronics?
5: Nope, but you guys got one bar each on two battery packs.
0: All
1: right.
5: (laughs) Okay, we'll take what we can get here. Tara has been living
0: in this camp for about three years now in an effort to call attention to the Line 3 project.
1: The Canadian pipeline company Enbridge plans for the pipeline to carry tar sands oil from Alberta, Canada to Wisconsin in the United States.
0: And along the way, the pipeline would pass under hundreds of streams, waterways, and wetlands, and cross land important to the indigenous people in Minnesota.
1: Tara and others say that this pipeline poses an unacceptable threat to the local environment and also will contribute to climate change. And so they've been staging actions to stop the construction. Protesters have chained themselves to buildings, to construction equipment. Some folks have even chained themselves to each other inside a section of pipe. In the last few months, over 100 people have been arrested.
0: How many people are there with you now in your camp?
5: I don't actually, so because this is a secure space, like that's actually a number that the police really want to know. Um uh-huh. So it's not something that we talk about very often. I will say that sometimes this camp has been a couple hundred at a time where we're hosting lots of people and training lots of people. We've trained probably well over I don't even know seven hundred people maybe over the last two years. Wow.
1: Tara's route to this point she says it started at Standing Rock
5: when that call from Standing Rock went out and got a rental car and drove everything I had out there and stayed for six months. I thought I was going for a weekend <laughs> and it was my return really to the land and also to my eyes being open to a different form of advocacy.
0: Tara was no stranger to activism. She had been a tribal rights attorney in Washington DC, she'd led a campaign against sports teams using Native American mascots, and she'd been a part of Keystone XL pipeline protests in DC. But she says Standing Rock was different
5: we were essentially afforded the chance to come together as Indigenous nations again and to share our foods, our stories, our teachings, and put our watches down and remember our way of life instead of this incredibly structured and distant way of life where we are very transactional towards each other is what I see. and it was different there. We were talking with each other and being in community in a very, very different way, um, in an old way. That was really powerful because I'd only done urban organizing up to that point. So I'd done mm-hmm. like the marches and the petition deliveries and the you know the demos in front of people's agencies and offices and all that stuff. But I'd never done any land defense at that point, and so I saw what it really takes and what people were willing to risk and the amount of response it got. I mean, Standing Rock and that movement reached the world.
1: Land defense is the name for the kind of direct action that the water protectors at Standing Rock used. And so when Tara learned that this new pipeline was moving forward, this time in her home state, she decided to bring that kind of protest to Minnesota.
0: For Tara, this was personal. She is Anishinaabe, and she grew up in northern Minnesota.
5: I grew up on the edge of a of a very large lake shed, um, a glacial lake shed that is, you know, to me, one of the most beautiful places in the world. Just like so many others with their homelands, we've been there for thousands of years. It's freshwater lakes and big pines and. Uh, Kind of those places that you see on movies when they talk about the cabin up north, with the loons calling, and <laughs> it, it really is that place. Though it's it's like <laughs> those loon sounds are something that I grew up hearing, and the northern lights and all of that. I mean, those are the places and spaces that I call home. But there's one
1: thing in particular that brought Tara back to Minnesota to fight this pipeline: wild rice, which is native to the region.
5: The one thing that's constant is wild rice which is the heartbeat of our people it's part of our creation story it's why we came here the creator told us to go where the fruit grows on water Mm -hmm. it's a grass actually that that grows in the actual lakes and in the rivers so you're kind of in this floating bed of all this tall beautiful grass and passing through the canoe really delicately and carefully and knocking it gently into the boat I mean, it's so central to our identity. I mean, one of the richest wild rice beds in the world is is here in Minnesota. Um, it's all along the Great Lakes, but one of them is here where you literally cannot see the water. There's so much rice in that lake.
0: So Tara is worried both about the local direct impacts on wild rice from the construction or possible spills, and she's also worried about the impacts of climate change more broadly from this fossil fuel infrastructure.
1: Now, Enbridge says it has fulfilled all the legal and regulatory requirements to build this line and demonstrated what it calls an ongoing respect for tribal sovereignty. It says it has safely operated pipelines across the region in wild rice habitat for decades. And it points out that the Line 3 project is actually a replacement for an existing line that dates back to the 1960s, though Line 3 would travel through several hundred miles of new territory. They say the Line 3 project is necessary, though, to address exactly the thing that Terra is worried about, spills on the current aging line. And, Enbridge says, stopping the pipeline won't stop the development of tar sands oil. The oil will just travel
0: in less safe ways, like by rail. But Tara says that argument is missing the entire point.
5: The idea is always like, you know, we're replacing old ones that are leaking. How about instead of replacing them and expanding them, which is what you're actually doing, you decommission the old one and pull it out of the ground and clean up the earth that you've contaminated. I like that option better. And there's always like this premise of, well, it's going to get shipped anyway. No, it's not. Like, that's the whole point. No, it's not. Your industry is on its way out, and that's the point. And we all know that. You can't sit there and say, oh, well, it's going to go by rail or it's going to go by ship anyway. No, it's not. The tar sands are on their way out, and that's the reality.
1: In many ways, what Keystone XL was for the Obama administration, activists like Tara want to make line three for the Biden administration.
0: They're saying... If we are serious about cutting emissions enough to prevent the worst impacts of global warming, at some point we need to start saying no to building more fossil fuel
5: infrastructure.
1: After all, it's estimated that Canada's tar sands contain twice the amount of CO2 as we've generated from burning oil in all of human history. That's according to a famous calculation by NASA scientist James Hansen. So that's part of the reason Tara founded her resistance camp, which is called the GNU Collective, to demand that the Biden administration prove it's serious about climate change by stepping in to halt the Line 3 pipeline.
0: But the GNU Collective and their pipeline camp is not only about direct action. Tara says it's also about fostering a different kind of connection with the land.
1: They live off the grid They grow a lot of their own food. And so it's this conscious decision to come to the land and practice and teach traditional ways of life.
5: I wanted to create a space for young people. And I specifically wanted to create a space that was about being in community with the land and not just direct action, but that balance between the two. Holding the land in your heart and understanding what you're actually fighting for is deeply important. Not the land as like this existential kind of idea or a place that you visit, but a place that's all around you all the time in every footstep that you take, that you are thinking about the earth and its life both around and within you. And to instill those kind of values, I I feel like is how you are able to create leaders and create warriors that are so needed. Mm -hmm. The big discussions tend to cycle around renewables and around transitioning away from fossil fuels into a different form of energy. I think that that's an easier conversation to have in a world that's largely driven by extractive economy. It's more palatable and easier to swallow than it is to discuss our consumerism, our consumption, and our relationship with our mother. That is a much more difficult conversation to have. I'm not saying that I expect most of the population to return to a state of living off the land because that's simply unfathomable for so many people that have been so comfortable for so long. Um, Mm -hmm. But I would say that what I've observed is that when people actually experience how hard it is to do this work and to keep ourselves alive. When you're hunting for your food, when you're growing your food, when you are hauling water, when you're doing all the things that you need to actually live in community with the Earth Direct community, spending an entire day in the woods, cutting and hauling wood, and then splitting wood, and then stacking wood, so you can yeah. stay warm and not freeze to death when it's 30 below zero. Yeah. I think it, it maybe leads to some self-reflection on just how much you have, mm-hmm. on how many comforts you actually need, mm-hmm. you know, and to a different understanding of the living earth around us. So
0: in this moment, with things heating up with the Line 3 pipeline um, as we're speaking today, um, what would you ask folks to do?
5: So there's something that I've been saying pretty frequently and regularly, which is to find your bravery. You know, it is frightening for many people to engage with law enforcement it's frightening for many people to do things that are uncomfortable and we don't we're maybe at the point of just still finding our voices but the reality of the situation is that the earth is on fire and we have to find our voices a lot sooner and we need to find our bravery a hell of a lot sooner than we have to date you got native people holding all this biodiversity and Yet most land offenders are those same native people.
0: Mm-hmm.
5: And we are just simply not heard. And there's not enough of us, you know, colonization and genocide have almost wiped all of us off the face of the earth, but we're still here. And so the greatest thing that I think people can do is to actually come and stand with us. Like that's a that's using privilege, using access, using your own agency and power and finding your own power and being empowered. I mean, I've seen so many people be empowered through watching not only their actions of that day. Like I stopped them destroying this wetland today, but also mm-hmm. I directly contributed to them getting that meeting at the white house that needs to happen for this to actually be stopped. I can look at my grandchildren and tell them I did everything I could or I tried to do as much as I could.
0: So are you inviting people to, to come to Minnesota and, and stand with you in land defense? Are you wanting more people to go up
5: there? We've had many, many people come through. And of course the invitation is always open. It's getting warmer for those that can be handled the 40 below weather. Yep. Please reach out to us on our Facebook for that and get in touch Uh, There's a lot of different camps here in northern Minnesota. They all have different focuses and uh, different ways of approaching things. Mm -hmm. But if you're interested in this particular method, and it's not just for young people either. We've had grandmothers come up here and stand with us and had some really amazing folks that were out from the northeast that are of faith. Uh, The Quakers that threw down with us. I mean, we've had some really incredible voices and people come and stand with us. Um,
0: I love that phrase, the throwing down with the Quakers.
5: <laughs> yeah, it was pretty powerful. I mean, they were, they blockaded a, a fuel pumping, a fuel station, an Enbridge fuel station with a piano and played beautiful songs oh, wow. in the morning. It was incredible. And, you know, uh, one of those moments that you'll never forget as long as you live, you know? Yeah.
0: So BYO piano. I you said it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So there's just one last question for you. We ask everyone who comes on the show, which is, given everything you know about the climate crisis and the state of the world, Tara, how screwed are we?
5: That's the question, huh? (laughs) That's the question. I'll say this, which is oftentimes not maybe a... The answer folks hope to hear from my perspective, but it's the truth. As an Anishinaabe person, I am aware and understand that human beings have been out of balance with the earth before. We've been wiped out before. That this has happened before and that we've reached the point now of believing that we are in dominion of the earth that we can take as much as we want and not have a consequence. Or maybe we we have reached a point of understanding there are consequences, but we're still not changing what we're doing um, because that's just the way things are. Or so we tell ourselves. So with that understanding, I'm not convinced that human beings are going to figure it out in time. Yeah. But to me, it's about knowing that we can still create the most equitable and just and loving society we possibly can, even if we are past the point of no return. That we can do that as people and we should do that. There's no reason that we wouldn't do that Yeah. other than our own fear. There's no reason that we should feel hopeless in that. It's a beautiful thing to sacrifice for somebody who's not born yet. It's a powerful, mm-hmm. life-changing act. So, yeah, I mean, this <laughs> maybe we're screwed, maybe we're not, but we can at least do the best we can.
0: So what does it mean? to do the best that we can.
1: This is a question we ask basically every week at the end of each podcast, where we try to offer answers to you, our listeners. How can you get involved and be part of the solution?
0: And of course, today we've been talking about a specific kind of protest and a specific philosophy of how to protest, and that is land defense. So if you're interested in land defense and in Tara and her work, you can check out the Ginu Collective, G-I-N-I-W, on social media to find out more.
1: But land defense might not be the center of everyone's Venn diagram.
0: We talked about this Venn diagram concept in the is-your-carbon-footprint bullshit episode. So check that out because when you're figuring out what you can do, how you can contribute to climate solutions, one answer is think about the overlap between what are you good at what is the work that needs doing and what brings you joy and try to find some way to contribute that's at the center of the three circles in that personal Venn diagram.
1: And the folks organizing around line three have actually put together a bunch of suggestions for how to get involved. They have this document with lots of fodder for your Venn diagram. So, like, I am looking for things I can do from home. It gives you four or five bullets under that. Or um, Mm -hmm. I want to participate in urban actions uh, and learn more from the Twin Cities. There's a bunch of uh, bullet points there. Or I wanted to redistribute my money or share my talents and or provide material support. There's tons and tons of bullets under that one as well.
0: Yeah. And one of the items in that document is a link to a petition asking the Biden administration to step in and do what they can to stop this project.
1: So, again, we'll link to this document in our show notes and also in our newsletter, our newsletter, which you can subscribe (laughs) to at howtosaveaplanet.show slash newsletter.
0: So lots of ways to get involved. Choose your own adventure.
1: All right, doctor, let's do the credits. How to Save a Planet is a Spotify original podcast and Gimlet production, hosted by me, Alex Bloomberg.
0: And me, Dr. Ayanna Elizabeth Johnson. This episode was produced by Rachel Waldholz. Our reporters and producers are Kendra Pierre-Lewis and Anna Ladd. Our intern is Io Oti.
1: Our senior producer is Lauren Silverman. Our editor is Caitlin Kenny. Sound design and mixing by Peter Leonard, with original music by Emma Munger and Peter Leonard.
0: Our fact checker this week is James Gaines. Special thanks to Mark Trehant, Connie Walker, Rachel Strom, and Felix Poon.
1: And thanks to all of you for listening. We'll
4: see you next week.
0: We'll see you next week.